Kids, if you haven't already, you can run and grab your clipboards, but maybe you have those already. Thank you for leading us so well in worship through song. We are a church indeed greatly blessed. We have several full teams of musicians and vocalists, and I trust like me you've seen the number being added to that and how gifted they all are. So thanks for leading us so well. Well, I'm excited to be back with you, opening the Word of God with you. We return now to another psalm in our series this summer. And I trust you have enjoyed and will continue to enjoy this time of year, soaking in plenty of vitamin D and getting in the water somewhere. It's a special time of year. And there is one part of today that makes it a little extra special, and that is that our dear sister Maeve Whitfield is 80 today. And so, happy birthday, Maeve. If there was ever an example of faithful pilgrims, uh, it's Dave and Maeve. And so, we love you, Maeve and Dave, and uh, we thank you for all that you do. Well... This time of year, as I said, is a time to soak in plenty of vitamin D, get in the water. Those things are physically refreshing, just as the Psalms, I trust you agree, are spiritually refreshing. This morning, I want us to soak in Psalm 52 for a while. And so let's read that together. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 52. For the choir director, a mascal of David, when Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Verse 1. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction. Like a sharp razor, O worker of deceit, you love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right, Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent. And uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous will see and fear. And will laugh at him saying, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge. But trusted in the abundance of his riches. And was strong in his evil desire. But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I will give you thanks forever because you have done it. And I will wait on your name for it is good. 
in the presence of your godly ones. Pray with me. Father, we come before you and continue now to worship you and ask that you might aid us. We are a people most needy, a people most privileged. Would you be with us now? From the pulpit to the pew, attend us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. It was the prophet Isaiah, you recall, who, when he was surrounded by the glory of God, said in Isaiah 6, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Psalm 53, which is the very next psalm, obviously, says in verse 2, look there. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, if there is anyone who seeks after God. That's God's audit of mankind. There is no one who does good. No one who seeks after God. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 You remember, God saw that the wickedness of mankind was great on all the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And so we live our lives as a humanity who is given to sin, given to evil. We live out the consequences of sin and evil. We feel and experience the consequences of sin and evil. And much of the way that evil is expressed in the world is through the tongue, the spoken word. Jesus knew it best. He said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus also said to the 12 disciples in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, if you, despite being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. What did Jesus mean by that? If you being evil, when he called the disciples evil. Well, we need to recall to follow Jesus is to have had your heart transformed by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And so, in regeneration, the exceedingly deceptive and exceedingly wicked heart no longer remains for the believer. And so how can Jesus say to followers, if you being evil, well, what remains, what still remains for the believer is unredeemed flesh. Jesus knew that we battle sin in our lives. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak given over easily to sin, evil. There's a war in our members. But something has occurred in the life of the believer, regeneration. And as the psalmist David begins this psalm, it's really from the perspective of the regenerate, marveling at the wickedness and evil of the unbelieving. Look again at verse 1 and feel the astonishment in it. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? 
Only a person who has experienced regeneration, the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart, having the eyes of their heart opened, only they can see with such astonishment the boasting in evil that the unbelieving world engages in. And, and so as we walk through this psalm, we'll make some observations and see some contrasts as the wicked are set before us. And God's word calls a spade a spade. We don't really walk around calling unbelievers wicked. But the Bible speaks of two people in this world, the wicked and the blessed. We'll see the wicked set before us. We'll see God's dealings with the wicked, as that's explained. And we'll see the joy of the righteous and their way as that's unfolded. So Psalm 52 really does offer for us a portrait of the wicked reprobate in juxtaposition, meaning contrast, with the peace and joy of the regenerate. All anchored and coming from the truth of who God is, His character. In this psalm, we're given three scenes to make observations of that I trust lead us to rejoice in the covenant faithfulness of our God. And also to warn lost sinners that may be sitting here this morning of God's perfect justice. We'll see first in verses 1 through 4, if you're taking notes, the wicked person's way. Verses 1 through 4. Second, we'll see in verse 5, the one true God's judgment. The wicked person's way in verses 1 to 4. The one true God's judgment in verse 5. And then third and final in verses 6 through 9, we will see... The righteous person's joy. And so let's dive right in. Trusting that the Lord will do a work through His Word in, in our hearts and minds. As we sit under His holy and Spirit-inspired Word together. In a collective act of worship. That's what this is. There's only a handful of Psalms that contain such a detailed explanation in the superscription, which you know is those little words above the Psalms. Only a very small handful explaining the context in which the Psalm is written. The words there about Doeg, the Edomite, that David pens above verse 1, they come from 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. You can read that later on, but let me give you the details. David had a good friend, right? What was his name? Jonathan, right? And Jonathan was the son of who? King Saul. Jonathan would go on to warn David, would he not, to run away because Saul wanted to kill him and David runs away. David runs away to a city called Nob. And in Nob, he lies to a priest called Ahimelech. What was the lie? David made up the story that King Saul had sent David on a special mission. David 
was also to ask for supplies. David asked for supplies and then Elimelech, the priest, gives David the supplies. And this is where Doeg comes in. Doeg was the chief shepherd of King Saul's sheep. And so when Doeg tells King Saul that Ahimelech, the priest, gave supplies to David, it sounds and, and really looks like Ahimelech has gone against the king. You see, Doeg being the shepherd, he had overheard the conversation between David and Ahimelech, the priest. And so Doeg knew that David lied. Doeg knew that Saul wanted to kill David. And so Doeg knew that David lied. And that Ahimelech, the priest, had not betrayed the king. Because Saul thought that Ahimelech had heard from him, David believed that Saul wanted him dead. So Saul was enraged at the priest. The fact that the priest would betray him as king. And so Saul ordered the soldiers to kill the priests. But the king's soldiers, the guard, said, no way. We're not going to kill priests. And then Saul says to Doeg, you do it. You kill Ahimelech, the priest, and the entire priestly order. And because it was beneficial for Doeg, and even though he knew firsthand, remember, that Ahimelech did not betray the king, Doeg went, and First Samuel unfolds it, Doeg went and murdered 85 priests and others in the city of Nob in a single day. So murderous evil from Doeg. And it's in response to that immense evil committed by Doeg that David penned Psalm 52. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? Nothing mighty about Doeg. Nothing mighty about the wicked today. Doeg slaughtered the innocent men of God, the wicked throughout church history and also today do the same to the children of God in places all around the world. And so you can imagine, can't you, that all throughout church history, as the righteous were being slaughtered, as Nero, for example, burned Christians alive, as persecution fell upon brothers and sisters... They'd turn to Psalm 52 and find answers for why and wisdom in how to respond to such evil. As our world runs headlong into what you could call a soft, sneaky totalitarianism as evil increases. In our day, in Psalm 52, we can find answers why and wisdom and how to respond. And so let's look at first, number one, the wicked person's way 
in verses 1 through 4. With Doeg as the very real little illustration and prototype for all wickedness and evil committed by humanity, David opens with a mockery and a rebuke in verse 1. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? And then verses 2 and 3 and 4, they serve to paint a portrait of the wicked and their ways. But David mocks the mighty man. This mighty man who'd committed great evil in murdering 85 priests. Doeg thought he was quite clever in what he was doing. He was acting out of a desire to achieve notoriety and esteem like so many wicked rulers throughout history and our present day. Doeg and they today think they're quite smart. Acts of evil committed without the conscience ringing loudly because it's deafened by their own lusts, seared shut by their ongoing rebellion toward God. Doag murdered 85 priests back then. Today, nation's rulers pass laws allowing the murder of thousands and thousands, if not millions, of babies. Our own nation having the most barbaric and murderous in the world. And like Doag, they boast in such evil, calling it a virtue. I think like me, you've seen when these bills are passed, there's standing applaud, boasting in evil. The word boast is the Hebrew word to convey not so much words that are spoken, but more so living totally confident about the virtue of the acts. Boyce, in his commentary, said of the word, it's a smug self-sufficiency convinced of superiority. I think that's a great way to describe the wicked. A smug self-sufficiency convinced of superiority. The wicked and their evil acts are just like that. But David's point is that they're mighty just for a moment. Their evil and their murderous acts won't continue forever and their acts against the righteous won't always continue to occur. And how is that made evident? How, how do we know that? How is that clear? That their evil, smug, superiority complex is temporary. How do we know that? Well, the end of verse 1. The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Here we know for sure that there is not some vague moral goodness that God is faithful toward as though people are protected by God because of their moral virtue and goodness. No, that word loving kindness is that remarkable word in Hebrew chesed. That word is so immense that translators don't really know what to do with it, but smash the word loving and kindness together to make up a word. Loving kindness. And not even that does that. Chesed means 
covenant, loyal, faithful, overwhelmingly kind, special and specific love. A love towards His people, whom He is in covenant, loyal, special love with. Why do you live in smugness and self-sufficiency and superiority, O wicked humanity? You'll get nowhere. Because the faithfulness of God endures all day long. You know, as New Covenant believers, this love is best expressed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the precious person. Of the Lord Jesus Christ, who took us while wandering far from Him, filled with that same self sufficient smugness, convinced of our own superiority, evil and engaging in evil acts, and He drew us to Himself and atoned for our sin as the Good Shepherd that He is. And then, having lived and died for us, He, as the Great Shepherd that He continues to be in our lives, As we live among evil, He promises to never leave us or forsake us. And He says that no one can snatch us out of His hand. And so let it be known again in your heart and my heart. Let it be known again, O precious child of God and the flock of the Lord Jesus. Jesus' covenant kindness and loyal love ensures that no one or no thing can ever separate you from Him. Your failings will never separate you from Him. And so David here knows that the covenant faithfulness of God ensures two things. That the evil perpetrated by the wicked towards the people of God cannot ultimately harm the people of God. In the ultimate sense. David had such a trust in the covenant faithfulness of God that he is able to write during the horror of 85 priests murdered that no matter how terrible things may be, by the eye of faith and a heart of trust, he knows that God will not forsake his people nor fail to provide for them security and refuge. That can and that must be our settled conviction too. Just as David was resolute, you and I must be resolute in that way. The covenant faithfulness of our God endures all day long. When evil presses in on us, when darkness encircles us, when trials 
befall us. The loyalty and the faithfulness that God has for His children endures in the morning. As matters begin to rise. In the midday. As the heat of it all really begins to pour on down. And then in the evening when everything goes dark and all light fades. The covenant faithfulness and loyal love of our God endures all day long. God will not fail. God will not forsake. What a reality to trust in. This world can throw the kitchen sink at us. But our God is a very strong tower and refuge. What a privilege to rest under the shadow. Under the wings and the shadow of the Most High. What a comforting truth. David is saying to us that the wicked and their evil cannot ultimately hurt you. They are just mighty for a moment. And the hurt they can inflict compared to eternity is but for a moment too. Verses 2 through 4 then really unload for us what the wicked love to do. Verse 2 says, Their tongue plans destruction and that they are workers of deceit. Verse 3 says, They love evil more than good. We see that, don't we? With unbelievers today, they love evil more than good. Isaiah spoke of our day for certain when he wrote in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Verse 3 continues on and says that the unbeliever loves falsehood more than speaking what is right. So there's a theme of deceit and lies with the wicked. Who set themselves up against the righteous. Deceit in their words and in their lifestyles. Verse 4 says, they love words that devour. And then another mention of deceit again. That's a portrait of the unbelieving, the wicked. Ahimelech, the priests, and the other priests who died that day, when Doag, mighty for a moment, came and murdered them all. They were all righteous men. They stood for righteousness. They upheld righteousness. We're told, aren't we, in Proverbs 14 verse 34, that righteousness exalts a nation. Just as Doeg wanted to exalt himself at the expense of righteousness, so too all those who come against the righteous. Who are, I want to add here, who are not righteous in and of themselves. We know that. 
we're righteous solely on the righteousness of Christ, which he merited by living a perfect life and keeping the law that we could not keep, which is then credited to us when we believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so the wicked speak evil, we see here, from the overflow of an evil, unbelieving heart. And they act out evil from an overflow of a desire to overthrow both the righteous person and the righteousness that exalts a nation. And so that's number one, the wicked way. The wicked are marked by a smug self-sufficiency. They're certain of their own superiority, which is built on lies and marked by their evil actions and words. In light of that, David then, in prophetic tones, speaks of their end in verse 5. And if you're taking notes, it's observation number two. We see there now the one true God's judgment in verse 5. The one true God's judgment. Look at verse 5. But God will break you down forever. Grave imagery. God will break you down. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. Grave imagery, a threefold statement of judgment here. God in his judgment takes the wicked person and breaks them down, snatches them up, tears them away, plucks them up. And I trust you see here that that there's a sense of surprise in these words. When you are snatched away, pulled out of their tent, That is their safety, their their supposed safe place. God's judgment comes unexpectedly. You know, this is a model for us for how to handle the evils perpetrated by the wicked towards the righteous. What do I mean? Well, we trust that God will come and deal with it. But God. Maybe not in the timing we like, but in His perfect timing, in accordance with His perfect plan. His covenant faithfulness to His children guarantees both their ultimate security and it also guarantees the execution of perfect justice upon those who harm them. This does not mean we, the righteous, do not suffer. Ahimelech and the priests certainly suffered. Christians throughout 
Church history certainly suffer. We may be called to suffer, but we can be certain that God's covenant love expressed in Christ as our good shepherd, who is the captain of our salvation, keeps us from eternal harm and ensures that all evils will be made right. Verse 5, God breaks down the wicked, it says, forever. Forever. Once judgment falls, it's forever. It's eternal. I want to say here at this juncture in the psalm, if you are here and you have not yet come to the joy-filled rest for your soul, found only in the Lord Jesus, the one who brings lost sinners freely into covenant relationship with the one true and living God, then now is the time you do that. Verse 5 is the warning bell for you. It's the shot across the bow, the bow. It's the call for your soul this day. And so come to Jesus at this moment. For in a single moment, God may come and pluck you up and pull you out from your safety tent. And it's too late for you then. The end of verse 5 says that God removes the wicked unbeliever from the land of the living. And so please, while you are living, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust that He died for you on the cross. That He took sin's penalty for you and that He rose again defeating death. Because while it is certainly true that God removes the wicked in judgment, It is the wicked in whom he delights to save. Jesus said, did he not, that it is not those who are well who need a doctor? But those that are sick? Sick with the malady of sin. In need of forgiveness for the great evil acts of rebellion toward God. There is a fearful judgment coming for all who boast. Meaning they live with a smugness and a self-sufficiency and a superiority about them. I can think of no greater evil than to reject the precious life and death and blood of the only begotten Son of God. Full of grace and truth. Sent from the Father's love as a gift. Well, after dealing with the horrific judgment that is certain to fall upon the wicked and vindicate the righteous, David the psalmist 
here now enters into the third scene uh, as we observe from it. Number three, the righteous person's joy in verses six through nine. We've seen the wicked person's way. We just looked at the one true God's judgment. And now here in verses 6 through 9, the righteous person's joy. Look at verse 6. The righteous will see and fear. And will laugh at him. Here's... Now the beginning of the contrast of the righteous and really a portrait of the righteous. First we see that the child of God by grace, that's the righteous person, will witness the judgment of God in some way. In some way we will observe the vengeance of God upon the supposed mighty mankind. David says we will see and fear. That is to say, we will stand in awe, in reverential awe, of the holiness and justice of God. And then look at what David adds. And we will laugh. Laugh. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Laughing at judgment. Please be assured, though, that this is not the laughter of rejoicing in another's calamity. But a laughter of satisfaction. A laughter of satisfaction and joy at God making all things right. That injustice is met with justice. That wrongs are made right. That things are restored. As we suffer under the evils of the world, whether that is suffering in your own personal life or whether that is suffering at a national level. All things will be made right in time. Because the loving kindness of God endures all day long. That's the joy here for David. It ought to be our joy. This helps us on a few levels. As God, for the good of His people and for His own glory, makes all things right. A few helpful things for us. We need not take vengeance into our own hands. Number one. And number two, we need not be too absorbed in the dramas of this world. No matter what befalls us, He will make all things right. 
Verse 7 offers a final description of the foundation and the very motivation of the wicked. Tells us that they trust not in the covenant faithfulness of God, but in their riches and their desires. Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches. They refuse to make God their refuge. And so in judgment, God will break them down, pull them out, snatch them away. Look now at verse 8. I love this. But as for me, look at that. That's a major turn in the psalm. David can see the work of God in his life and he compares that to that of an olive tree. But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. In the region David was in, the olive tree was one of the longest lasting trees. One of the most stable trees. And one that would bear fruit consistently in its season. If you haven't seen Al Bori's little olive grove, go check it out. It's beautiful. But note that the tree wasn't out in the field. It's not out in the field open to the elements. It's not open to being tampered with or run over or plucked out by a farmer. But this tree is inside in a sacred court. It is a green meaning flourishing, olive tree, in a place where it cannot be damaged or tampered with. And the strength of that tree, which David is comparing himself to, and you and I can freely and happily compare ourselves to, The strength of that tree is the object of that tree's trust. Look at the middle of verse 8. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. That's the same word. That's chesed. I trust in the covenant, loyal love of God. The mighty man of verse 1 trusted in himself. The mighty man of verse 7 trusts in his riches. But David, serving as an illustration of all believers, trusted not in themselves and not in their riches, but in the loyal covenant faithfulness of God. The security and the peace and the joy comes not from what David did, but in who God is in his person, in his character. 
It's the same for us. It's the same for you and I. But for God, our foot would slip. It was that covenant, loyal, faithful, overwhelmingly kind, special, and specific love that God has towards His people whom He is in covenant love with that ensures our safekeeping, a green olive tree in the house of God. That, that gives the people of God confidence. That gives the people of God a secure hope. A hope not in ourselves or our situation or the present era, but in the character of God. Unchanging, immutable. Whose promises we trust in and whose promises never fail. This is the cure for anxiety. This is the cure for worry. This is the cure for becoming overwhelmed. The loving kindness of God towards His people. We may and we do dwell among evil. Evil may Increase in the land. But in the house of God, there are green olive trees. Stable, secure, unable to be tampered with. And for that, verse 9, I will give you thanks forever. I'll give you thanks. I will not live in fear, but instead I'll live in gratitude. I will not be overcome, I will overcome by thankfulness. I will find satisfaction in you. Look at verse 9. Because you have done it. What does David mean? You have given me far more than I deserved. Prior to your mighty work of salvation in my heart and your ongoing assurance of sanctification in my heart, Life, where you by your saving grace made my heart willing and turned me from mighty man committing great evil and finding satisfaction in riches, you changed my heart and you caused me to walk in your ways. I will rise above the fear. I will sail over the anxiety. I will walk through the worry. 
and rise above the world's agenda to foster fear. And I will just thank God. In the morning when things are hard. I will give you thanks because you have done it. In the noonday heat. I will give you thanks because you have done it. What have you done? I'm a, I'm a green olive tree in the house of God. In the evening as the light fades and things get very dark and lonely. I will give you thanks forever. Because you have done it. And the thankfulness and the gratitude. It stems from his covenant love expressed to us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's the Lord Jesus who we remembered around the table. It's the Lord Jesus who brings us into the fullness of this joy-filled covenant. And who brings us into the love and promises of God. And so as the people of God. The precious children of God. Whom Jesus was given the right By the Father to adopt us as His sons and daughters. As we live among the great evil, where so many mighty, momentary men and women boast in their evil, we trust in God. And we give thanks to God. Finding him in Him all that is praiseworthy and satisfying. And then, we wait. We wait. Look at the end of verse 9. And I will wait on your name. For it is good. That's so beautiful. Even if times are hard, either personally or nationally, we wait. We wait resting in Him. We wait trusting in Him. We wait giving thanks to Him. The one who freely gave us His Son. And who will freely give us all things. To live in the ultimate sense, safe and secure in the house of God under His care. Amen. Father, we come before You and we thank You for this time. We ask, Father, that You might take all that has occurred here today, plant these truths deep inside our hearts, you have done it. We give you thanks. We pray, Father, as we sail through trial, personally, nationally, whatever it may be, we thank you for freely giving us the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for your promise 
of freely giving us all things for life and godliness, to live safe and secure in the house of God. Under your care, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.